Every four years, we gather on these steps to carry out the orderly and peaceful transfer of power. This is Donald Trump at his inauguration back in 2017. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. But four years later, he and his supporters had changed their tune quite a bit. This is him and his family and his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, speaking to the January 6, 2021 mob that would wind up storming the Capitol building in an act of insurrection, leading to Trump's second impeachment. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you to the Capitol because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Let's have trial by combat. My father has started a movement, and this movement will never, ever die. It will never die. Today I'm going to make two suggestions. Number one, that cults and extremist organizations, like QAnon and some far-left or far-right political movements, are addictions. And two, that thinking about these movements in terms of addictions, and thinking about those caught up in them as addicted people, will help us better understand both addiction and the people whom we care about who seem to become stuck in these movements. This is a tricky episode. I thought about putting it on the shelf to avoid conflict, but after I let it sit for a few weeks, I opened a blank word file on my laptop and wrote the following heading, Things People Addicted to QAnon and Heroin Have in Common. And it didn't take much effort to realize that I was on to something. I'll talk more about some of these traits during the episode, but briefly, people who are addicted to a drug like crack cocaine and people who are actively engaged in conspiracy theories like QAnon share a lot of behavioral patterns. It takes all kinds, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Just like all addictions, your background doesn't really matter. It gets worse during lockdowns or times when social connections are reduced. What's about to be revealed is that QAnon is actually JFK Jr. Negative consequences don't result in members avoiding the behavior in the future. Now the virus, when you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. It'll go away. It will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. QAnon only becomes a conspiracy when people find it at the right time in their life, when it's useful for making them feel better about something they don't like. It's a crime punishable by death. Nancy Pelosi is guilty of treason, and we want her out of our when the supply is cut off, people get creative and even dangerous about finding a new source. Alternative facts. You'll actually take it from unreliable and unlabeled, or in this case, unsighted sources, just like with drugs. When you're trying to talk to somebody who's actively in addiction, whether it's QAnon or heroin, rationalization doesn't help. That's because addiction is a learning disorder. By the way, I brought back Big Ten football. (laughs) It spreads from one area of your life, where it might even be effective, to all areas of your life. Set and setting. When you're out of your home, a smaller dose can get you really high without you realizing it. Anybody that's ever showed up to a class or to work and been really stoned has experienced this phenomenon. Would like to see a sleepy Joe Biden. You might do out of character and even dangerous things sometimes when you're under the influence, like the Capitol insurrection. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs and disgusting animals. Only Rosie O'Donnell. 
it becomes conflated with immorality in the minds of those who oppose it. You will have a crash in the markets because he's going to double and triple your taxes because he's following the radical left agenda. Once you're actively engaged and addicted, you want to share it with others and surround yourself with a group of people who are also addicted. If these connections aren't enough to convince you, then stay tuned. There's more. Hello, welcome. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I am Ben Boyce, activist, host, and all-around drug-loving dude. Today I'm going to talk about addictions to radical ideologies. A few weeks ago, our country watched as a few thousand Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol building, and most of us weren't surprised so much as disappointed. Some of us felt like saying, well, yeah, how did you think this was going to end? We've been trying to talk to you about calling names and mocking others for their differences, about vilifying the other side as not only different, but as evil, and how that always winds up in real-world violence. And we were right, but that's not really news to anyone. Sometimes talking shit about people ends in someone hurting those people. We all know this, but in the United States, we value free speech so much that we allow it anyway. You might think of it as a drug that we refuse to outlaw, because the consequences of making it illegal outweigh the benefits of keeping it openly accessible. But those consequences are real, especially if it isn't being used responsibly. And for the last half decade or so, the United States has really dropped the ball there. It hasn't just been QAnon and radical right hate groups like the Proud Boys. Members of Antifa broke business windows in downtown Portland in January of 2021 in protest of Joe Biden's inauguration. And even though I agree that anyone who says Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are radical lefties is listening to some fake news of their own, they both have long careers built on perpetuating systemic oppression, the idea of fucking up private businesses on the heels of the right's odd coup attempt is just an example of how characteristically out of character U.S. culture is right now. We're at a historic breaking point, and the COVID quarantines only made things worse for all addictions. The reason we're seeing an upsurge in extreme belief systems like QAnon or Biden wind deniers or Antifa window smashers in Portland or so-called Nazi punchers who use violence to make their point, the reason we're seeing it across all walks of life and political affiliations is because it's an addiction. Those who engage in conspiracy theories and extreme movements find something in them that makes them feel so good that the negative consequences don't cause them to alter that behavior. And just like most people with addictions, those who engage in conspiracy theories on the far right or the far left are finding themselves spending a lot more time in rabbit holes and Q-drops ever since COVID hit. They're trading normal coping mechanisms for the thrill of solving a puzzle, which inevitably paints them as the victim, thereby giving them both a target for their angst and a way to feel better about the world. And just like any good addiction, the further in you go, the harder it gets to imagine life without the conspiracy being true, without the drug. Thinking about the recent upsurge in extremism and conspiracy theory followers gives us a way to understand both them and addiction better. Addiction isn't some weird thing that happens when we take drugs. It's a part of life, a biological adjustment that sometimes gets out of whack when we use the wrong drugs, or when we select a particular coping tool too often or when we engage in evidence-free logic because it feels better than the truth. Allegiance to the flag. 
solemnly swear, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend that I will support and defend the Constitution of the My argument isn't partisan. In fact, we can start on the liberal side because we too are finding ourselves addicted to our own demagogues. I've called it chronic wokeness in the past, the desire to feel like you just solved the puzzle and fixed racism or sexism, and the accompanying urge to spread the message far and wide, even to those who don't want to hear it. The movement on the left feels kind of religious at times, the movement of cancel culture, of everything is racist and everyone should be constantly checked and reminded that their actions hurt others. Don't get me wrong, there is some truth to the claim that systemic racism is a thing. I mean, black folks are still incarcerated at rates six times higher than white folks, largely for crimes related to the war on drugs, even though they don't sell or use drugs at rates any higher than white folks. They're arrested more, charged with more severe crimes, offered less generous plea deals, sentenced to longer in prison, and refused parole at higher rates than white folks, even when they're charged with the same crimes in the same district, and even when they have the exact same criminal record. And the research that proves this isn't even new. It's been replicated over and over in different states and counties. You can check out the blog for this episode at drdrunkyshow.com for links to a number of studies that confirm this. Systemic racism, along with a host of other oppressive systems like patriarchy and Christian hegemony, are real, and we should talk about them. But we should also make sure the movement isn't misconstrued by well-meaning folks applying it where it doesn't belong. Systemic racism is probably not responsible for your coffee being cold this morning. Most of us know that, but when we become addicted to something, we keep going back to a behavior or a drug that makes us feel better, even when it doesn't work anymore, even when it bites us in the ass and doesn't fit well with the situation at hand. Heroin might be great for getting a good night's sleep, but not for getting ready to attend a wedding or teaching a class. That's where we get in trouble with addiction. We find a substance or a behavior works wonderfully, so we use it again the next time we need the same effect. But when we become addicted, we throw out many of the daily tools for life, and instead we just use that drug or that behavior, even when it causes massive negative consequences. When I first used heroin, I used it on the weekends, or when I was particularly bored or anxious. It wasn't an addiction at that point because it improved my quality of life. But as my pastime became an addiction, I started to use heroin for everything. Anxiety, depression, boredom, and eventually every waking moment. It became a framework for my entire worldview, and it started to push other important considerations out of the way. And that's when it became an addiction, when it interrupted my life. Addiction is a learning disorder. We don't learn to avoid a behavior or a drug even after it results in negative consequences. And for those of us who were raised to think we shouldn't see skin color, or told that racism was fixed a long time ago, or assured that capitalism doesn't require tons of poor people for every one rich person, for those of us raised to not see the oppressive systems at work right in front of us, finding out about these issues and sharing that information can indeed become addictive. It feels great and it gives us a way to understand the world around us, to explain the things that make us feel bad or confused. It becomes a drug of sorts, a lens through which we see the entire world, not just the portions where it applies. What Trump supporters have been experiencing is no different than what Obama supporters experienced after his election, a religious euphoria that works better if we just ignore the obvious evidence that it's out of place. Obama's presidency began with effigies outside the White House. You can still find these videos online. 
Cardboard cutouts of lynched black men alongside loaded racialized messages, which became the root system of birtherism, Donald Trump's first entry into politics. But we Democrats didn't care at the time. We were loving the win, reveling in the joy of having demolished racism once and for all by electing a single president who was a person of color. Sure, it felt good, but we overused it. We became addicted to it. We missed the cancer growing right in front of us, which we could have addressed with more effective tools, like dialogue and compassion. Instead, we applied liberal amounts of wokeness where it didn't belong, and our angry relatives responded four years later with a religious move of their own. They elected Donald Trump. The election of an unqualified rich white man wasn't entirely unexpected. I'm really rich. The United States has long valued rich folks just for being rich, and Trump is nothing if not associated with money. But I grew up with Trump being this guy. If you want to be successful, you want to be like Trump, gimme, 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 push, 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 step, 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 crush, crush. Bill Gates, Donald Trump, let me in. I got smoke, I'm well known like Donald Trump. You're fired. So I was a bit taken aback when people who couldn't care less about that sort of celebrity suddenly seemed to fall in love with a demagogue who was saying all sorts of problematic things. And as the next four years unfolded, I watched Twitter and the rallies along with the rest of the country, scratching my head at what on earth his supporters were seeing. It wasn't policy initiatives or calls for unity that brought the crowds to their feet. It was name-calling, mocking, and incredible lies. If you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. And they say the noise causes cancer. And they named me Man of the Year in Michigan. A lot of uh, votes cast that I don't believe. I look at. California. I wanted to know, was it just the love of money, which is what made him popular in music and on television throughout the early 2000s? Was it a sincere belief that this guy was a very stable genius? Was it his ability to say incredibly short-sighted things, often without any proof, and get away with it? There was much illegal voting. What they're doing is a hoax with the ballots. I'm the most transparent president probably in the history of this country. I certainly don't hate Trump or his kids or the people that support him. And I don't think he's responsible for the state of our country right now any more than fast food is responsible for heart attacks. Trumpism is an addiction, a learning disorder. Trump says and does things that make people feel great in the moment, just like QAnon or a pyramid scheme or drugs. But when that feeling of euphoria some people experience when Trump tells them that Mexico is sending rapists and drug dealers to the United States... They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume... Or when he defends joking about sexual assault as just locker room talk... ...that you have sexually assaulted women. Do you understand that? No, I didn't say that at all. I don't think you understood what was said. This was locker room. Or when he claims that the election was rigged without providing any real evidence. Everybody saw we won by historic numbers and the pollsters got it knowingly wrong. That feeling of euphoria comes with a massive downside, a hangover, a reduction in your quality of life. Maybe we go home and repeat Trump's claim about Mexican immigrants being mostly rapists and we get yelled at by our family members or written up by our boss. Maybe we repeat the lie that Trump won the election, only to have some fact-seeking asshole like me show interest and ask for the evidence that convinced you. And here's where the addiction shows up, because most of us don't have the class privilege to surround ourselves with an echo chamber of supporters, like Trump can do. So when he tells boldface lies, he gets cheers from riled up crowds, retweets, but when we take his lies home and we tell them to our family and friends, we don't get the same results Trump gets. 
If everything were going normal, we would quickly learn that behaving that way, making claims about evidence because they make us feel good, or repeating racist claptrap, or amplifying conspiracy theories, we would learn that the negative consequences of lying to ourselves and to others just aren't worth it. But we don't learn. We persist with a behavior despite negative consequences. Like being part of an insurrectionist raid on the Capitol building, fueled on by Trump's evidence-free logic of victimhood. Around 15 years ago, a close friend of mine called me, very excited, and told me that God had delivered a personal message. He wanted to make us all rich. Well, as you might imagine, I was pretty interested. And at the time, I was sort of agnostic. So I didn't think it was necessarily impossible that God had looked down and decided to ignore a bunch of pleas from people who needed operations or to avoid foreclosure or those who were homeless, struggling in prison or on the streets, that maybe he ignored them just to bless us. And I've always been an evidence guy. So whenever someone near me has an outrageous claim, I typically jump in and engage. I want to know how they became convinced. I want to know the specifics, so if this thing ever happens or turns out to be true, I can give credit to the person or the organization who broke the story. I can trust them more in the future. I still do this to this day, even as an atheist, which isn't really a thing. It just means I don't pretend to believe any specific holy books, even when my harder brain tells me some of them aren't true. Anyway, I still do this to this day, and it annoys the shit out of my people which should be a clue that we've moved into a very dangerous cultural space. Asking for evidence is a compliment. It means I plan to incorporate your worldview into my own, and maybe even to share it with others, after I verify its accuracy. If you ever feel annoyed or angry when someone asks for evidence, it's probably time to hold up the mirror and ask yourself why. That might be your addiction popping up. My comprehension of Trump, and of the radical Trumpism we're now calling QAnon for the time being, comes from that Jesus-wants-to-make-us-all-rich phone call more than a decade ago. The plan was to buy Iraqi currency. It's called dinar, because it was incredibly devalued by decades of U.S. war and occupation, what we in the social justice field called U.S. imperialism. The idea was to purchase a bunch of this paper currency, which was basically worthless. This scam still exists today. Apparently, Trump breathed some new life into it when he spoke about leveling the trade deficit with China, and his words were taken out of context. The currency devaluations, I've been complaining about that for a long time, probably very much sooner than a lot of people understand or think. We will be all at a level playing field, because that's the only way it's fair. Here's where it gets interesting. My friend knew that the revaluation was coming because of websites where anonymous people claimed to be in close contact with official channels. In this revaluation, currency which was worth a penny or two right now was going to be worth hundreds of dollars overnight. My favorite poster went by the scream name Okieman134, and he would post once or twice a week about conversations he overheard between the president and his advisors, or a convention he attended in Israel where such and such was postponed until after such and such event, which he would then proceed to explain was code for the soon to occur revaluing. And with his assurance, couched in a I heard so and so say it mentality, my friend would buy even more because Okieman said the revalue is coming tomorrow. And if it didn't happen, and it never did, Okamon would offer another hit, and instead of anger at his lies, we could just take the juice and feel squishy and happy all over again. The point was to keep us engaged, and always expecting the miracle to happen any second. And it only worked so long as Okamon, and God for that matter, 
Got credit if and when Dinar finally did revalue, but never got the blame if the entire thing went to shit. Okamon and his henchmen have been selling worthless paper currency to people for more than a decade now, and they even added an additional level to the genius plan. Allow people to put a small down payment on a huge purchase of paper money, down payments which they forfeit if the entire purchase price isn't paid off within a few days. Then keep promising that the revaluation is coming next week, or maybe tomorrow, long before you lose your down payment, so don't worry. This story should be ringing bells if you know anything about QAnon. Q-drops are vague posts by someone who always claims to be close to higher-ups and aware of something big about to happen. The swamp is going to be drained, and any day now, half of Congress is going to be arrested for treason. It's called the Great Storm, and it's just the frosting on the cake of bizarre conspiracy theories, like the one that led to Pizzagate five years ago. The claim that Democrats were running a child sex ring out of the basement of a DC pizza parlor convinced one man to storm the building armed with an assault rifle. That shouldn't surprise us. If you think that the world is full of evil people or demon spirits who are out to get you, then engaging in such fantasies can actually feel empowering. It can actually become, you guessed it, addictive. So Trumpism, all the way up to the radical form called QAnon, is an addiction, plain and simple. Trump says things that other world leaders just won't say. Things that make his supporters feel great. Things like, you're all victims, people are trying to get you. Or, the people who don't agree with you are evil, not just looking through a different lens. And those rhetorical moves are powerful. There's something incredibly relieving as a human being about realizing you've been victimized for your religion, or for your class, or for your race, because it not only explains our exclusion from groups or from social circles in a way that doesn't require us to do a lick of work, I mean, if those assholes just block me because I'm right and they don't want to hear about it, then why do I need to work on anything, right? But victimhood also makes the other side of any argument into a bad guy, into an illogical monster who is picking on you, a bully. The mirror of self-reflection can always be ignored in favor of pointing at those who don't agree with us and knowing, deep in our hearts, that what we believe is right. It always has been. No evidence required. It's not just Trump. I mean, he didn't invent this phenomenon. Think about the last 30 years of technological advances. We've moved rapidly from a country where for hundreds of years, people were not really expected to know jack shit. How could they? There was no internet. No telephones, no rapid transfer of information. So if someone from Kansas City asked you, did you hear about the fire in New York? It was okay to say, no, I didn't hear anything. Tell me about it. But as newspapers became television, became computers, became smartphones, we all watched our heads expand with more pride than knowledge. We've soaked up this idea that we should know everything, or at least a little bit about everything. But nobody wants to actually do the homework. Give me the short article, or better yet, give me the comments that one of my friends made. It used to be okay to not be a smartass, to not know the answers to trivia or political questions, to not have a firm opinion backed up by facts. But nowadays, if you don't have an opinion, you might find yourself feeling like you should. And when you type a few words into your favorite search engine and then browse through the first article or YouTube video that pops up, you don't know about whatever subject you're looking at, aside from just enough information to convince somebody who doesn't know anything. We peddle in half-truths, undone homework, small tidbits that may or may not actually relate to the facts. It also used to be unacceptable to call somebody a name, 
or to insult them based on their identity, physical disabilities, religion, or race. But damn if it doesn't feel good to bully somebody, to operate from a position of power, a pulpit, a lectern, a podium, a presidency, and just let them have it. Mock them. Call them a clever name like Sleepy Joe or Crooked Hillary. Both of these things, not calling names and not feeling obligated to know everything, they've changed. But for the same reason, the internet. Since information is so easy to come by nowadays, we're expected to know all sorts of things that just happened yesterday. Celebrity gossip to political upheavals. And we're supposed to have an opinion. Who was wrong? Who was slighted? How should it be fixed? Things like that. And in a culture where a two-party system has become the inescapable norm, those opinions are sure to get raked into either one camp or the other. Everything is now politicized. As Carol Hannish said decades ago, the personal is always political. The products we consume, the places we visit, the jobs we work, the cars we drive, they all support powerful organizations and special interest groups. But when those things move from political to politicized, as they are now, we find that we can't get through five minutes without stumbling into an argument with our relative on the other side of the aisle. And all that pressure is building up. We used to practice decorum, or perform civility, or whatever other silly term you want to use to say that we used to stay friendly with one another. But since face-to-face interactions were largely replaced by sometimes anonymous avatars who can vent the worst their ids have to offer, we've become used to the swamp of insults which invades every piece of digital culture. When you add these two slow-moving events together, the rapid expansion of technology for the purpose of supplying each citizen with limitless information, and the normalization of insulting those who don't know the answer, or who don't share your answer, you get where we're at right now. We are the end result of four decades of unexpected explosions in communication technology. And Trump's time was now because he knew how to reach people who were already engaged in that sort of thinking. And he knew how to keep them coming back. Which insults to level and which were too extreme. He knew when to offer simple truths and when to peddle alternative facts. Well, he did until the last couple weeks of his term, when he incited an insurrection by sending a rowdy crowd across town to ransack the national capital, after he infuriated them with lies about being victimized by shadowy groups operating behind the scenes. QAnon shit. Trump wasn't elected because he was the most qualified, or the most experienced, or the most presidential, or the most respected. To some degree, it was just the opposite. He was elected because he didn't fit the mold. But he did fit a mold, one the public wanted. He followed the two awful norms I just described. He pretended to know everything, to be a very stable genius who never needed to read a book or take a class. And he leveled insults at anyone who wasn't his friend, and sometimes even those who were. Here's another good clue that Trumpism is just a simple addiction, an issue with coming back to something that makes you feel good despite increasing negative consequences and decreasing positive effects. His supporters usually have an answer or two when you ask, why do you support Trump? I mean, they don't say that they enjoy his mocking of disabled people or that he brags about grabbing women by the pussy. Some of them hate that stuff. We don't appreciate lawyers because of a specific objection they made once upon a time. Or preachers or teachers or actors. We appreciate them all because of what's behind those individual lines. The performance of their craft. And that is where Trump supporters seem to fall short on legitimate answers. The responses almost always appeal to things that he does while performing that identity. 
Their answers don't make sense. Nobody loves Trump because he's young, or because he's kind, or because he's always honest even when it might be easier to just lie. You can't love Trump because of those things because he doesn't do those things. But when you ask his supporters, they usually say something along those lines. He speaks his mind, he's draining the swamp, he tells it like it is. He certainly hasn't done any of those things while he was in office, so why the bold-faced lies, even to ourselves? When I was using heroin daily, and my arms looked like pincushions, I would have said I used it because it made my life better, or because I enjoyed the experience, or because it improved my cognitive ability. All lies that worked to let me get past the question without digging into what was really going on in my head. We all love to call names, but we learn with the invention of culture that those whom we insult often don't support us in the future, that it's not worth that good feeling we get because of the long-term negative consequences. We love to know everything, but we also learned with the invention of culture that bullshitters are untrustworthy, that Aesop's fables were often correct. False cries of wolf will eventually mean nobody shows up when there's a real cry. Nobody will believe you. It just isn't worth it to lie about things we don't know. The negative consequences outweigh the positive, and because of that, we usually learn to avoid it. Addiction is the persistence of a behavior despite negative consequences. But in order to become addicted to something, whether cocaine, heroin, or Trump, you have to be exposed to it during a time when it actually medicates something. You have to feel like that behavior is actually working to minimize the original condition. You can't become addicted to heroin if you don't ever pick heroin up, or if you use it during a happy time in your life and don't really feel like it did you much good. But if you're struggling with, say, severe depression, or abuse, or trauma, or anxiety, and then you try heroin, and then you keep using it daily for months every time you feel anxious, that's how addiction happens. And that's what happened with Trump. The United States is a religious nation. The majority of our population has always claimed to be Christian. Right now that number is about 65%. And that majority means that the Christian way of life, to some degree, simply becomes privileged, normalized. Even those in the United States who don't practice Christianity know about many of its symbols and rituals. We see crosses scattered on roadsides or posted atop buildings, or we see people hold hands and bow their heads in a circle before a meal. We see presidents sworn in on Bibles and we hardly notice. I've talked about this repeatedly on this show. When you live in a Christian nation, you get so used to Christian ideology seeping into the national anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance and messages on the back of currency and church billboards every two miles. It just starts to be normal. It feels like that's just the way it is. I don't have a problem with Christians or with any other religious group for that matter, but just like any system, Christianity has consequences. If you grow up celebrating Christmas around a nativity scene every year, singing religious songs and play-acting the manger scene, you will unavoidably come to associate those things with Christmas. And if you see a manger in a barn decades later, you may well find yourself thinking about Christmas. If you grow up dressing in white every Easter for church, you might see wedding dresses and think of an old church memory. Now imagine someone wants to tell you about a story that resembles the Bible story of virgin birth. If they knew about your past, they could save a little time by using a framework you already know, a story you hold sacred, and they could just swap out some characters and change the elements that were important. They might say, remember Mary and Joseph traveling to a census? Well, the story of Jim and Janet is similar. 
It begins when they were forced to travel across the country unexpectedly because of a call from Jim's family back home. And during that telling, you may unavoidably start thinking about Christmas or your childhood, those old nativity scenes on cold December nights. That's how our brains work. If you grew up in a Christian environment, you'll probably be more receptive to any story told in the framework of Christian doctrine. And if you grew up in the United States, you grew up in a Christian framework. I realize that the project of essentializing Christians is a lost cause. The second I say, all Christians do this, or all Christians believe such and such, I'm sure to exclude a bunch of people who can then say, I don't believe that and I'm a Christian. But there are a very few things that we can say fit all systems of belief, which fall under the title Christian. And even in those few elements, you might notice a framework which Trump is great at taking advantage of. He knows the Christian nativity scene, so to speak. If you're a Christian, you probably claim to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin and resurrected after his death. You also probably know that these things are impossible. If someone tried to tell you the same thing happened to their friend, you wouldn't give it a second thought. And that's okay, because faith isn't about evidence. It's actually about taking pride in ignoring or even outright rejecting evidence in favor of a story that suits your needs. That doesn't mean it's wrong, just that it's an example of the very human habit of carving out a space of exclusion where the normal rules don't apply. If you believe this, you might be right. We won't know until we die. But you also can't prove it. That's why it's called faith. And just like the nativity scene, you've established a pattern of thought which might prove useful to somebody wishing to take advantage by appealing to the way you see the world. This is just one small piece of the puzzle of Trump's attractiveness. If you're a Christian, you probably also think that God is looking down on you, and that sometimes God gives you things that you ask for. And again, you might be right, but my guess is that along with your giving God credit for all the cool memories and lucky draws, you don't give God credit for the nasty things that happen in your life. I mean, for goodness sake, it's not God's fault you stepped in dog shit, right? And anyone who tried to use a bad experience as evidence that God doesn't exist isn't going to get very far, and they probably shouldn't. There's no evidence that God doesn't exist, any more than there's evidence that he does. Again, that's why faith is faith. It's an area outside of normal logic-based thought, and we use different rules to decide what we believe by faith compared to what we believe by evidence. So bad things are not evidence that God doesn't exist, but neither is a positive event evidence that God does exist, not unless the choice to save somebody is also a choice to allow someone else to die in a fiery crash or to suffer terminal cancer. And if that's the case, we're talking about a pretty bizarre God. My point is that you wouldn't let anyone else get away with saying that they had the ability to save people from car crashes and that they chose you, not without asking why on earth they didn't choose everyone or someone else. Why did you let them die and only save me? Christians have a framework that centers themselves in the story of the universe. And that's why it's so attractive, why it feels so right, like that's just the way things are. If someone were to come along and understand how that thinking process works, even if they weren't a Christian, and 2 Corinthians Trump clearly is not, if they were to take advantage of that framework, and if they also understood how to manipulate the desire for evidence, well now this person might have a chance to deceive you. Remember, this isn't an exercise in criticizing Christians, but I'm simply trying to pinpoint a few characteristics most Christians share, and then brainstorm a scenario where someone comes along and takes advantage of those shared lenses for the world. And it feels like we're getting dangerously close to someone who looks an awful lot like Donnie. 
Now, not everyone who supports Trump is a Christian, but the non-Christians have some things in common as well. And just like with Christians, I'm not attacking them or their leader for it because it's part of our identity as U.S. citizens. We can't avoid it. Unless we're a part of the small percentage of people classified as super wealthy, we probably feel as if something is amiss. Like we're giving our lives away to punch a clock, but we aren't ever getting anywhere near the top where people like Trump get to live. We want wealth, which we conflate with happiness and security. And in the United States, we feel as if we've been promised it. We've been told that anyone can come here and have a shot at success. That we can grab ourselves by the bootstraps and pull ourselves up to whatever level we wish. But it doesn't take us long to realize that that's all a bunch of shit. Most of us spend 13 years in public schools and then move to a job that pays minimum wage or something close to it as we begin a long ascent to the top, an ascent that never seems to approach the end point. We have to blame somebody, but when we look at the 1% of US citizens who control almost half of the country's wealth, the obvious targets, we find ourselves unable to reach them since they're surrounded by gates, fences, walls, armed guards, all the trappings of wealth. But when we look to our left and our right, we see plenty of people in arm's reach who don't look like us or who don't practice the same faith as we do. And it can be tempting to throw the blame on them, to rail on affirmative action programs or social justice initiatives as the reason we can't seem to become billionaires without much effort. This is where the U.S. has remained for the last 200 years or so, designed so that an ever-shrinking group of people can control an ever-increasing portion of the nation's wealth by keeping the rest of us focused on fighting with one another, lest we join together and confront those who are actually responsible for our oppression. Every once in a while, someone comes along and manages to stoke us up with their fiery rhetoric and their clever insults. And if we aren't careful, we forget that person has goals and prospects of their own, just like the rest of us. And if that person uses our cultural infatuation with name-calling and mocking and power-grabbing, if they use it to their advantage, they may well ascend to a position of political and cultural power that allows them to get away with all sorts of things which the rest of us can't do, but which look like a ton of fun. And we're back where we started. Name-calling, mocking, lying, instigating riots, stigmatizing, slandering. These are the fun activities which we resort to in lieu of doing homework. I'd rather log on to a YouTube video and shred the author because fuck it's fun to be a bully. But my problem is I don't have the trappings of wealth that could protect me from the negative consequences. Best for me to just put those desires on someone else. Perhaps a rich and powerful man with a well-known name who can behave that way and get away with it. So that's my take on Trump and on those who find themselves unexplainably drawn to his style. The Christians love him because he taps into their ideas of God and their evidence-free, faith-based framework of giving credit for everything good, but never dreaming of acknowledging God or Trump's role in anything bad. The blue-collar workers love him because he taps into that evidence-free framework that blames their problems on those who don't look, talk, or worship like they do. And everyone loves him because he's addictive. But we would be better served by continuing the long project of self-improvement, of telling our children and ourselves to avoid that tendency of devaluing others as a way to boost our own self-confidence. Another Trump will come along, and if we aren't careful, this one will avoid the mistakes made over the last four years, some of which are the only reason he isn't still in power today. Now that Trump's voice has been effectively silenced, 
at least for the time being. We should remember what happens when the majority of a population sees a behavior like Trumpism or injecting heroin is problematic based on a rare event like an overdose death or a capital riot. And we should remember what happens when those people cut off the supply of that drug or that behavior. When casinos close down, bookies pop up and crime related to illegal gambling increases. When doctors cut off our legal supply of drugs, we turn to the streets, where the substances we use as substitutes are much more dangerous than whatever we were initially taking. And this is what we're going to see happen with people addicted to cults like QAnon or Trumpism. Now that their supply of Trump tweets and Fox News interviews has been cut off, they're sure to turn to alternative sources for that same feeling of, I'm being victimized and only such and such can save me. We're in for quite a ride. I don't know if Trump's impeachment is going to turn out to be a good thing or a bad thing, and it's really hard for me to swallow any arguments that basically absolve all future presidents from any actions taken in the last few weeks of their presidency because we don't have time for them to be convicted. The last thing I want is for the next Trump, Republican or Democrat, to think that inciting a riot won't get them in big fucking trouble. But my point is that people don't just stop using drugs when their supplies are cut off, especially not when they're already addicted. They use more dangerous and deadly drugs, and they use them more often, in more dangerous ways. Thinking about Trumpism as an addiction gives us a path forward that doesn't require us to follow that same busted-ass, shame-based model made popular by our failed war on drugs. We can do better. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm your host, Ben Bliss.